scripture reading today comes from Jeremiah, um, uh, the 10th chapter, verses 23 and 24. And these are the words we read there. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Discipline me, Lord, but only in due measure, not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing. So man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So before the ministry of the word, would you join me once again in prayer to our great God. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you um, for this wonderful treasure that you have given us in your word. Thank you, Lord, that not only have you given us this, this treasure, this word, this this absolutely true and errant expression of uh, your heart and, and the, the truth about the world that we live in and in ourselves, Lord. But you've also given us your spirit to help us to understand that. And so today we're asking that you would help us through your spirit to hear your word, to understand it. But then we ask that you do more for us than you would help us to embrace what we hear and that you would teach us, gracious God, how to put it into practice in our everyday life. Guard us, Father, please, from ever listening to your word as though we're merely bystanders. Help us, Lord, to to know that your intention when we come here is to speak to us, that you have something to say to us. And then when we hear it, Lord, help us to know it's your voice and then to learn to do it. Uh, we do consider it just a great privilege to be here with you, with your people, and in the ministry of your word. And as for me, Father, I do pray once again, as I often do, that you would allow me to disappear behind the that wonderful cross of Jesus Christ so that he and he alone would be exalted in our midst this day. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know if um, this has happened to you yet, but if not, it probably will sooner or later. Uh, you find yourself driving down a road, and at some point you look around, and you have no idea where you are. <laughs> you've been driving for a while, but you've been thinking about other things. It's not that you've been inattentive, you've been watching the other cars, you've been checking your mirrors, using your turn signals, passing, even driving defensively. You're not at all a hazard on the road, but but your mind has been on other things. Maybe you've only been daydreaming, or, or maybe you've been uh, deep in thought about some important issue in your life or the life of a loved one, and all of a sudden you look around and you don't know where you are. Now, sometimes that happens because you really don't know where you are. You missed a turn, and you're on a road that you've never been on before. And the only thing to do then is to turn around and to try to retrace your steps. And if you're not a man, you can stop and ask for directions. 
But at other times, you really are on the right road, and you're going to the right place, and everything looks vaguely familiar. You've seen it all before, but you, you just don't know where you are on your journey. Uh, it's a little disconcerting. You know uh, you've seen these things before, but you've seen them always in the context of your trip, and you, you don't know where you in, are in that trip. And, and so it feels like it would feel if someone had blindfolded you and then taken you and dropped you off on a road somewhere that you've traveled fairly often and then take the blindfold off and leave you to find your own way. And if you've ever uh, find yourself in that situation, there's this kind of a two-step process that you go through to get your bearings back. First, you remember where you're going and where you came from, and you see, you're recalling the, the larger context of your trip. And then you try to determine exactly where you are now, maybe by recalling whether you've passed through a certain town or a certain intersection or simply by trying to place the landmarks that are around you. And, and before you know it, it, the process itself doesn't really take all that long. It takes longer to tell about it than it does to happen. But before you know it, you know right where you are, and you can go back to your daydreaming. Now, something like that two-step process can and often does happen when we're praying for God's guidance. Uh, We've been talking about discovering God's will, whether it's for the larger things like uh, his will for your life or the smaller twists and turns of our existence. And, And we've seen that there's a number of things that God does Uh, that he uses to reveal his will to us. And I've made rather a point of uh, saying that all of those things that we've talked about are aspects of relationship. They're really not tools that we use to dig out God's will uh, uh, as though we're mining for ore, uh, as if God we're trying to keep his will from us. If God's will is hidden, it's, it's because we don't yet have the eyes to see it, not because God wants to keep it from us, but the only way to develop the eyes to see is through this relationship with him and, of course, uh, the relationship with other people because that naturally comes into the picture uh, when we talk about God and God's larger creation. So God wants to reveal his will to us, and he does so in relationship. He he speaks to us through his word, not uh, like a message from a fortune cookie, but as a part of an ongoing conversation with us. And he also reveals his will to us as we're part of a church and as we yield ourselves to him in obedience. I mean, why would he show us something new if we're not doing what we already know we ought to be doing? And he reveals his will to us, his fruit of a growing love, and in light of the fear of God, which our culture doesn't know very much about, but which we looked at two weeks ago. And we have looked at all of those things the last several weeks, but there's one more thing that we want to look at today, one more aspect of a relationship through which God reveals his will. And that uh, thing that we're going to look at is prayer. And the passage that we're going to use to help us understand this is in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 25, which we looked at uh, before for help two weeks ago, actually, uh, but we're going to look now at a different 
portion of it. And we're going to consider this time verses 4 and 5. So I invite you to join me if you want to, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25, where we'll be looking at verses 4 or 5. It's also up on the screen on either side of me. So what I want to do is begin, as I often do, simply by reading the passage. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Now, this is obviously a prayer, and the psalmist is turning to God and asking him to lead him, to show him the way that he should go. And as we look more closely at this, we're going to see that there's often this two-step process in discovering God's will, and the psalmist recognizes it as he prays. That is, it's reflected in his prayer as he prays. I have to tell you, this two-step process doesn't always happen, but it often does, and probably it really does occur most of the time. Sometimes, though, God simply does just reveal his will to us. Um, there's no process. He just shows us. We ask him for guidance, and he does something. He answers our prayer in a way in which we know what we're to do. For example, you might be praying and asking God whether you should change jobs or not. Maybe you're doing so because you have uh, another opportunity in front of you, or maybe the job you have right now doesn't feel just quite right, even though you may not know exactly why. And then you go into work the next day, and you find out that you don't have a job anymore. Uh, Your position or department has been eliminated, or the factory has been closed down, and pretty much you have your answer in just one step there. Of course, you still have to determine what job you need to take, uh, but he has shown you, at least for now, that it is time for a change. Now, the more normal way, though, is this process. And, and the first step is really, in a sense, finding your place or, or God's will in a larger context. So in, in verse 4, we read this. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. And see, the psalmist here is not asking to be shown a particular way. Not yet. That, that's going to come in the next verse. Rather, he's asking for God's ways, his paths. We could kind of summarize it by saying his truth. You see, it's, it's not singular. It's not the way he's asking for in this verse, but but plural, God's ways, his his paths, his truth. And specifically what he's doing is he's asking to be shown how God's truths apply to this particular situation that he finds himself in. And we know that from the larger context. I mean, he's in a situation where in some manner or another his enemies are attacking him. And then at the end of verse 5, which we're going to look at more closely later, he says, my hope is in you. And that word translated hope uh, in our version is, is actually the Hebrew word for wait. And so the psalmist is going to wait for God to answer him. And what he wants to be shown here is God's truth as it applies to the situation that he's in. Now, let's see if we can understand a little bit how that works. So I asked Addie if it was okay to share this with you, and she said it was. So she's in this process uh, of applying to different schools, and she has to write some essays. 
And in one of those essays, she was asked what her greatest strength was, and she replied, her desire to succeed. Now, she asked her mom and me to look these essays over, and, and when I read that particular one, I disagreed with her. I, I, uh, I, I didn't ask her to rewrite it or anything. I, I mean, it, it was due the next day, and she had worked so hard on it, and, and she has such an intense schedule. But I sure wanted her to know that I disagreed with her on it, that that was not her greatest strength. You see, her integrity is her greatest strength, at least in that area. And, and that's why she strives to succeed. And if that desire for success ever gets divorced from integrity, it, it becomes a dangerous thing. See, the integrity is the larger uh, picture, the larger context for success. And we need to be reminded of things like that. See, you, we face situations all the time where we don't know what we ought to do. And, and God's truth provides this, this larger context for the thing that we're facing. It's a general context of life, and it at least tells us how we ought to act in the meantime until we know what we're supposed to do. But it often shows us more by showing us a kind of a general direction. So 25 years ago, as I made the rounds with a chaplain at Swedish Hospital in Denver, Colorado, in the intensive care unit, we went into the room of a young man who was dying of AIDS. Uh, There was still some concern in those days uh, about how one contracted the disease. And there I was looking at uh, an emaciated 25-year-old who looked more like a skeleton than a living man, all except for his eyes. They were simply full of a deep sadness. So I'd seen the chaplain before, but he'd not seen me before, and he was looking at me. He was really too weak to speak, and I was there only to observe. The, the chaplain did all the talking, and my heart went out to him. And I did the only thing I knew to do. I reached out my hand and I touched him. The chaplain never did that. I I don't know if he was following protocol or what, but he never touched the man. But the moment I put my hand on him, his face changed. I don't know for sure what he was thinking, but I, I think he was just simply grateful for the contact from another human being. And we left the room, and I never saw him again. Now, you see, I didn't know what to do, but I knew I was there for a purpose, and I knew that God loved him, and I knew I couldn't just walk away, so I did the only thing I knew to do. God's truth, his ways, his paths are larger than the context of our lives and the things we face. They apply all the time and everywhere, and they apply 
whatever situation we find ourselves in, and they apply when we're seeking his will for our lives. It's a, it's a larger context of the journey. It's the, it's the rules of the road, and sometimes we just simply need to be shown how they apply to some particular situation that you or I might find ourselves in. And as you pray, often God reminds you of those things. The psalmist here is really a step ahead of most of us, I think, because he's asking that very thing. He's saying, Lord, show me your ways. Show me how they apply to my my situation. Instruct me, Lord. And yet, that general context isn't enough. Knowing the rules of the road... Well, it helps keep your car going in a particular direction and in a safe manner, but it doesn't give you your destination. So you need more. You need something more specific. And that's what our author asks for in the next verse in verse 5. And this is what he says. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. So this verse really is a pointed request for guidance and not just because he's asking for guidance. The, the, that, that's the word that he uses there, but, but that indicates that's really what's on his mind. He's got a particular situation. He's looking for guidance, but it's also in the singular here. See, the author's not asking for the ways in the past, that plural kind of thing as he did him for. Those are the general things that impinge on his thinking and therefore his way, but he's asking for this particular applications, God's truth or the right way. In fact, that word that's translated uh, there as truth could be translated as firmness or faithfulness really points to the fact that, that God isn't guiding us into a particular truth, but that his leading would be true, that he would lead us and guide us on the right path. It says, teach me. It's a request for instruction, isn't it? It's an acknowledgement that the writer does not know what he needs to do to make a decision or to face a situation he finds himself in. Our tendency, isn't it, isn't it our tendency to simply try to figure out what's best, at least what we think is best, or make the best decision we know how? Maybe the truth of the matter is, is we need to realize that God is available to teach us, to guide us, to lead us uh, into things that we can't learn on our own or from books or or startlingly as it might sound from our generation, things that we can't even discover on the Internet. Now, I, I want to think again about uh, a person who is applying to colleges. So, so they know the process, right, that they have to go through, the applications, the tests, you know, that they have to take, the fees they pay, and the writing of the essays. And even before that begins, they thought at least somewhat uh, about what they want to know so they know what college to apply to. And probably they've considered things that I think are frivolous, like what's the weather there? And probably they've also thought about things more serious, uh, such as well, how far is it from home and how often will I be able to come home because of that distance. And then finally, the applications are all done, and they're all mailed in, and then they begin receiving letters. 
and uh, the school starts responding to them. And some of those letters will inform them that all the places have been filled and those colleges are now off the table and no decision has to be made. But other letters are going to bring some good news that they've been accepted. And now they have a choice before them. Which of those schools which accepted me do I accept? Which one do I attend? And so we've gone to this from this general thing to something very much more specific. And that's what the writer's doing here. Specific guidance for for uh, the right path. He sees before him certain options, uh, and he wants to know which one to take. Or maybe, maybe he doesn't see any option at all, but he understands that God has a way for him that's what he wants, and that's what he's asking for. And so the psalmist, I think, is wiser than we often are. Uh, he, he wants to know how God's truth in general applies to the specific situation. It tells him, at very least, how he ought to act in the meantime, and, and he's asked for specific guidance in the situation. But, you know, he also understands something else. He, he, he understands what that request for this specific guidance involves. And, and at the very least, he understands that it involves time. It involves more than that, but it doesn't involve less. And we see that really in the phrase, and my hope is in you all day long. Now, I want to take that apart just a little bit so we can better understand it. And first, I have to say that whenever you see that word hope in the scriptures, we need to realize that it's an un- there's an unfortunate meaning that is prevalent in our culture. In fact, it is the most prevalent understanding of that word as used in a common, our, our common speech in our nation. And what most people mean when they say they hope for something is this wishy-washy kind of hope-so kind of thing. For most people, when they say, I hope for this, it's the same thing as saying, let's keep our fingers crossed. For them, it's simply a feeling or a desire rather than an act or a decision or an expectation. And so we have to explain to them, don't we, that the biblical word hope means a confident expectation and not just a wishful thought. And so that word hope, as we've noted before, might be better translated to wait for or to look eagerly for. That's what it means in the Hebrew. And that looking eagerly for something is why it's often translated in hope, but its base meaning is to wait. But waiting isn't a passive thing. It's active. It's looking. It's expecting. I love Psalm 121. That psalm, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my hope come from? He knows. He knows it comes from the Lord. He tells us that my hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the reason he's looking to the hills is because he's expecting that the Calvary will come riding over that hill at any minute because he is looking to God for help. See, the writer is telling us that he expects something to come his way. He is waiting for it eagerly, and he's looking for it. And he says, 
He'll wait all day long for it. (laughs) And you know, you really know what that means, even if you don't know that you know what it means. You know, we have an expression like it, just like it as a matter of fact. For example, you might say to someone, boy, you sure do enjoy that pumpkin pie, do you? And he or she may reply, all day long. (laughs) You see, the person isn't just saying they like pie for one day. The psalmist isn't here waiting for one day. He will wait as long as it takes to get an answer, just as our friend will eat pumpkin pie any time they have a chance. So I want to think about this for a minute. Just what does that look like? And again, I, I want to go back for a moment to the illustration of something somebody looking for a college. Now, sometimes you hear people say something like this. God doesn't care what college you go to. Now, I don't accept that. I have to tell you, or if I accept it, I do so with some reservations. I I, I mean, if someone was just choosing a college, maybe it wouldn't matter. But so much more goes on there at college. I I mean, the people that you meet, the particular environment you're in, the church that you will attend, and the friends that you make, I think God does care. And I know that statement about uh, God not caring is often made because sometimes young people get so overwhelmed with trying to determine what God's will is that they can't make a decision. But I have to tell you, I think we need to be careful not to short-circuit the process here. So if someone is genuinely seeking God's guidance and they don't seem to be hearing from them, maybe it's a matter of waiting more and eagerly looking for what it is that God has. And I mean, it could be sin that's standing in the way, but that's not always the case. Maybe they need to ask God some questions and think more about it. Maybe they need to ask him, well, do you really want me to go to college at all? Maybe they've just assumed that that's what God wanted. Maybe that's the issue. But after praying, they still feel like they need to go to school. Then maybe they need to ask other questions. Uh, maybe there's a school I haven't considered yet. Or, or maybe God's trying to speak to me about my major. Maybe there are other questions that I haven't thought about here. And they can be praying about all those things at the same time. But if after all of that, they're still convinced that God wants them to go to school and to one of the ones that they've looked at and that their choice on a major is okay and there isn't any sin in their life, then I think that at that point, if they're still not sure, they can see God doesn't really seem to have a preference. And so at that point, I think they make the best decision they know how, even if it's based on something like the weather. You know... The way you do that, I really believe, is to say something like this. Lord, unless you show me or tell me differently, this is where I'm going to go. And then he will close the door or not. So what is it that we have so far as we've talked about this morning? See, we're looking for God's will, and God reveals his will to us in relationship. So we pray and we ask him how the principles of our faith apply to the situation we're in. And again, at the very least, it helps us to know how to act in the meantime, and it often does more that, but guiding us in a general way 
And then we ask for specific guidance for that situation. And we wait. Or rather, we expect him to show us and we wait for guidance. And you know all of that? All of that, the context of the faith and ha- that we profess and, and how things fit into it and the seeking of specific guidance and the waiting and the wrestling as you wait, it, it's valuable to us because once you've made your decision, you're confident then that you are in God's will. And I have to tell you something. There is great comfort and strength and encouragement in knowing that. And the reason, again, that we do all of this is relationship. It's based on the relationship that we have with the God we serve who, and who that God is. And the psalmist reminds us of who he is. In verse 4, he calls him the Lord. And if you look in your translation, it's all in capital letters. And in the Hebrew, there's just four letters there. The theologians call it the tetragrammaton. It, it means the self-existent God who created everything and who can do anything. And in verse 5, the psalmist calls him my Savior. It's personal. He's my Savior. He's your Savior. And his Savior, he, you can trust him to guide you. That's a character of one who saves. You can rely on him. See, because of who he is, you trust him. You seek him. You look for his ways and his paths, and you turn to him for guidance. And you're willing to wait on him. Yeah, the psalmist had confidence that God would guide him, that God would reveal his will to him. God reveals his will to people in a number of different ways, but it's always through relationship. And, you know, you and I can have the same confidence that the psalmist had. In fact, we ought to have more confidence. I mean, look at what he has done for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know that. You know he's faithful. You know you can rely on him. You know you can trust him. He's not playing games with you. He wants you to know his will for your life and in the things you face in life. And he reveals it to you in relationship. But he reveals it to you. That's the kind of God that he is. That's the God that we serve. And that's the God that we honor when we come to this table. That's that good reminder that we need in our lives. Every month we need to be reminded 
that Christ shed his blood, his body was broken for you and for me, that we can live with him forever and our sins can be forgiven. So we're going to remember that now. We're going to observe communion in the Lord's Supper. And in this church, we, um, we invite anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, to partake of this meal with us.